Welcome to Movie Maker. I'm Tim Malloy, and today our guest is Roberto Bentevena, screenwriter of the new Ridley Scott film House of Gucci, starring Lady Gaga, Adam Driver, Al Pacino, Jared Leto, and Jeremy Irons as members of the feuding Italian fashion family. Roberto Bentevena was born in London to Italian parents, and his mother was in fashion, and he grew up partly in Milan, which gave him lots of insights to tell the sprawling, wild, and comical, but mostly true, story. House of Gucci has many fans, including me, but some critics have complained that the film is quote-unquote messy. I suspect that these critics have not read the splendid book House of Gucci by Sarah Gay Forden, which fascinatingly and elegantly encapsulates decades of incredibly messy behavior by the Gucci family. And Roberto Bentevena's script cleans up the story even more, getting to core truths while jettisoning or integrating lots of juicy real-life moments and subplots. We talk about what's real, what's poetic license, and why the critics who condescendingly refer to the film as unintentionally funny have really misread it. There are some spoilers in this interview, but none that ruin the movie, and almost all the events that it depicts have been in the public record for at least 20 years. I think this will be an entertaining listen for anybody who likes the movie, or likes the actors involved, but I also think it'll be especially good for anyone who is a screenwriter trying to adapt an extremely unwieldy true story. And now, here's Roberto Bentevena talking about House of Gucci in theaters now. I was just listening to an interview with Ridley Scott on the Mark Maron podcast where he mentioned that he went through four or five different versions of this script trying to adapt the incredible book that this is based on, also called House of Gucci, and just no one could crack it until you. What yeah. did, happened? What, did, what was the key for you to figure out how to, how to adapt this book? Sorry, yeah. Well, by the way, I had no idea Ridley was on Mark Maron. I'm now going to find that <laughs> interview. Yeah, I think the key for me was to make it very uh, ironic and to and to really not take the characters too seriously, not take the story too seriously. Um, I'm not a particularly kind of drama kind of person, <laughs> as in, you know, I, I try to find humor in everything. Um, obviously, some stories I can't imagine Shinda's List being humorous. But, you know, for the most part, I'm attracted to stories that have a a kind of um, a self-awareness or a a kind of an ironic twist. And so for me, this was a huge, uh, a huge opportunity to do that. And, um, you know, to tell a very, uh, very colorful story, very operatic story uh, in a way that uh, that would be fun and uh, almost like a parody or a a satire. so that was a huge, that was a huge uh, eureka moment. And then the other thing was just to really uh, draw from my experience living in Milan. Uh, you know, my mother's a fashion designer. I uh, used to play a couple of doors down from where Maurizio Gucci was murdered as a kid. Wow. So there was, yeah, there was all these kinds of uh, crazy cosmic connections to the story. And, um, and I'm a big fan of specificity. And, you know, I really like it when movies feel feel like uh you know where you are and, you, and and there's details that are either very heavily researched or just uh come from the the writer or the director's personal experience in that world so i just wanted it to feel very uh very specific and um you know whether it's the the tuscan cake that they're eating the castagnaccio or the the fencing and all that stuff you know i just wanted it to feel very very uh, accurate to that world yeah, I'd love to get into some of the specifics later because there's one specific that I think you made up um, about a maroon uh, Gucci loafer that is so good that is that really moves things along. It's just a great bit of screenwriting. 
Um, mm -hmm. I think the entire, I think all of this is kind of a masterclass is a little overused, but I think it is a masterclass on how to adapt something that's very difficult to adapt. Um, it looks like you made some really ruthless, very elegant cuts um, yeah. in what to, what to include and what not to, including, if I'm not mistaken, you took out two Gucci brothers entirely. You took out Giorgio and Roberto. That's right. Yeah. Well, actually, Vasco. There was another one called Vasco. There was a daughter. There's so many characters. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, it's funny because I was actually reading a review this morning by this lady who was like, uh, why weren't there two daughters instead of one? And she was sort of like picking out all the, the inconsistencies between the story, the real story and the script. Right. And I'm like, lady, it's called screenwriting. It's called dramatizing. It's called taking liberty. And, uh, you know, you just have to you have to put all that stuff aside and just service the story and be like, OK, what am I trying to get out of this? And what's going to be the most um, effective uh, choice that you make in order to tell the story that you want to that you want to tell? You know, and, and for me, it was just there was so many balls in the air. Um, there's so many characters that I had to just make that choice of um, of really selecting. Uh, what I wanted to, you know, to put in the script, um, which is tough, you know, but, uh, but yeah, I think it's important to kind of understand the, the difference between uh, the, the fictional story that we're telling and obviously the true, the true events that transpired. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, people may think they want to hear about all of the members of the Gucci family, but some of them are kind of boring um, or traditional. Yeah. And not not as outlandish as Paolo, for example, who is an incredibly rich character who deserves the more time. Um, another thing you did, it seems like you put Patrizia in the middle of some events that she wasn't necessarily in the middle of to sort mm -hmm. of keep our focus involved. Like, am I mistaken? It seemed like the evidence of Aldo's tax evasion coming from her, um, she wasn't really that involved in it. The inheritance tax forgery, she wasn't really that involved in. Yeah. She wasn't there when Maurizio escaped on the motorbike. Um, yep. Why was it important to get her character front and center? You're absolutely right. Uh, I had no doubt about that whatsoever because I always saw it as her story and I always saw the story told through her eyes. And on, on a purely logistical level, you have to have her involved in those in those scenes, in those decisions. Um, you know, it, it works much, much more uh, effectively as a Lady Macbeth sort of um, fable if she's manipulating Maurizio and then Maurizio can enact those those decisions but you have her really uh, the architect of the narrative in a, in a sense um, so I, I never even thought about the the fact that it wasn't maybe accurate um, but I you know I love the idea for example that she forges Rodolfo's signature uh, and that begins a spiral of, uh, of tax evasion and then Maurizio's in St. Moritz and meets Paola and then that leads to the affair. And so, you know, she really is the, the, the master of her own downfall in a sense. And um, so it was just a very natural choice that I made. Um, and of course, you know, you lose her a little bit in the, in the third act of the movie, but not that much. I mean, I think, you know, it, it's a, it's a choice really made to, to make it a little bit more of a, of an ensemble piece at that point in the, in the film. Uh, but uh, even then, I still think that you're very much in her in her shoes and in her perspective, you know. Yeah. Yeah. And I thought that even though she wasn't necessarily involved in each of those specific things, she is kind of the symbol of Maurizio's drive. 
um, and his yeah. drive to do anything and to cut corners if he needs to to succeed. And that seems to be true in real life. I mean, it does seem that she certainly motivated him a lot uh, to get involved. Yeah. 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 Well, and, and um, you know, it's such a fine line because some of the lines, some of the quotes by Patrizia, by the real Patrizia, I thought were very charming, uh, but also very cynical and very, uh, I don't know, almost alienating to some of the audience. I, I, I felt anyway, like when she says, uh, uh, I'd rather be sad in a Rolls Royce than happy on a bicycle. You know, they're fun, but but it's like, you know, she's such a uh, an unsympathetic character just to begin with. The fact that she plots her husband's murder and the fact that, you know, you can see her as a social climber and a gold digger. Uh, that, uh, you know, giving them, gi- giving her those lines, I-, I thought was a step too far. Um, you know, another very famous one was when they asked her after she got out of prison, what are you going to do now? And she said, well, I haven't worked a day in my life. Why would I begin now? <laughs> you know, it's cute, but like, in a moment in which people lost a lot of their jobs through the pandemic. And I don't know, I, I don't, I, I don't consider myself a particularly ethical person, <laughs> but I'm fair. No, but like, I, you know, I'm not particularly sort of uh, aware of these things when I'm writing, but that for some reason really struck me that I just didn't want to lean into the, the kind of uh, the cynicism and uh, the, the nouveau riche, you know, arrogance because it's all already there and I just didn't want it to be uh, too much of a, of a thing, you know? Did you see the card counter by any chance? Oh, the Paul Schrader movie? Yeah. No, I really want to actually, I should see that. He talks about in our latest issue, um, how he makes a lot of films, the protagonist is someone who you're with in the first person and yes. you're writing them all the way through and then maybe two thirds or three fourths of the way through, they do something that they shouldn't have done, but you're already on board. Yeah, I remember. I remember reading an interview with him about that uh, when he was talking about Taxi Driver. Uh, I, I guess he's, he's um, you know, it's a refrain of his. And that really stuck with me. You know, the idea that if you if you put yourself in the shoes of a so-called unsympathetic protagonist and you tell the story from his or her point of view, that the audience is going to stick with them throughout, uh, no matter what they do. And um, And I actually, in the drafts of the script... Uh, I actually had Patrizia, uh, there was a voiceover mm. throughout the movie and it was very Sunset Boulevard. And um, and I was really doing exactly this that we're talking about. I was really uh, trying to get the audience to, to sympathize with her as much as humanly possible, or, you know, because I knew that one of the accusations of the film could have been that it was not, um, you know, that she was, an unsavory character or, you know, why do we care? Or all these kind of screenwriting notes that you get that are very vague and, and annoying. Yeah. I, I don't think I've been as annoyed with critical reviews as I've been with the reviews for this movie. I mean, obviously there's a lot of good ones. Sorry, say that again? You haven't been as... I, I haven't been so annoyed by... Oh, annoyed. By negative reviews of a movie in a while because yeah, obviously there are, there are obviously many good reviews. <laughs> say that again? I'm sorry. Yeah, no, no, you're telling me. I'm, I'm blown away. I, it's, it's all over the place. Well, there's lots of very good reviews, but the reviews that are negative seem to fall back on two of the hackiest things, I think, to criticize. One is the accent doesn't sound right to me. And the other is um, this didn't really happen like this. And another one yeah. is we care about these people. And it's like, I don't know. First, let's just throw out the idea altogether that 
people have to be likable to be good in a movie, right? To be watchable. The accents thing is whatever. You should listen to the real people who are quite outlandish um, mm-hmm. in their dealings. And the idea of it didn't happen exactly like this, like you said at the beginning. I mean, that's screenwriting. Yeah. What one other thing that I picked up on was um, that people seem to have wanted or, or thought they were getting into a drama. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, you know, we always thought of this as a, as a, an operetta, as something quite light. And I mean, obviously, it's got it's got very dramatic beats in it. But it was always it was always going to be funny. You know, there was always going to be a, a, a thread running through it of grotesque comedy because they are grotesque characters. And that was you were asking me earlier what what made me crack it. Yeah. That was it. That was it. Was finding humor in these people because. Mm-hmm. I could not take them too seriously. They could take themselves seriously, which is funny. But as an audience member and as a writer, I had to find the irony and the, and the humor in it. And so, you know, I read a review that said un, un, unintentional comedy. And I was like, no. First of all, how do you know it's unintentional? Right. Um, and, and also, it's very, it's very intentional. So, you know, I mean, we went to a couple of screenings and uh, and people were laughing their asses off. And I was so thrilled. I mean, that's, you know, that's great. So yeah, it's an interesting, interesting uh, response it's getting. I personally don't mind it because I feel like we've hit, we've hit a nerve. Um, you know, when they're good, they're incredible. And when they're bad, they're terrible. I mean, you've obviously done something right if people feel so passionately uh, about something. I saw it with a real audience and they laughed and applauded at the end, which doesn't really happen that often with like a non-industry audience, um, wow. which I thought was really cool. And then they also said, that was Jared Leto. Uh, which was uh, I mean I said the same thing is that Jared Leto when I saw him on set yeah Pacino has a great anecdote about that have you heard the anecdote no well he said Pacino's basically when he was on set um, this strange looking man went up to him very tentatively and after a few attempts went up to Pacino and said papa (laughs) and Pacino was sort of freaked out and, and called somebody over PA was like who is this strange dude? And the PA said, that's Jared Leto. He had no idea. I love it. You know, going to not, setting out to not make the most dramatic movie possible, but the best overall movie possible. You took out one of the most dramatic scenes in the entire book where the Maurizio, Maurizio, the character played by Adam Driver, actually gets the Jared Leto character, Leto character, um, Paolo Gucci in a headlock in a board meeting as he tries to lunge at Aldo Gucci, the Al Pacino character. So you could have had Adam Driver, <laughs> Jared Leto, and Al Pacino fighting in a boardroom, and you skipped it. You didn't do that. Why did That's you- That's so funny. I, I don't know. I think I might've been over boardroomed, uh, you know, cause I had the, I already have a few scenes in a board. Well, I have one scene in a boardroom, but um, I think Ridley, Ridley really wanted that scene when when Gaga and Driver arrive at the birthday on the lake and uh, all the family members are wrestling with each other. Mm-hmm. He just always wanted that scene in the movie. That was like a thing for him uh, because he thought it looked like, you know, that it was it was sort of uh, a visual representation of how vicious they can be with each other. And um, so I think I think we checked the box uh, on the on the scu- the scuffle, uh, uh, you know, meter. But yeah, I, actually, now that you say that, I probably, that would have probably been pretty fun to see uh, Aldo and uh, and Paolo and Maurizio fighting each other in the boardroom. I'll, maybe I'll write it in for the next cut. 
<laughs> it just, it might, I thought you might have skipped it because it might have been too easy that you wanted to sort of get mm. the emotional drama more than you wanted to get just the, uh, the fisticuffs. Yeah, that's also a good point. Yeah, I mean, I did have a great scene um, with Aldo and Maurizio when, um, when, when Aldo sells the shares. You know, um, I, I had a scene where he just w- wipes everything off of Maurizio's desk and sits down in his throne, basically, and signs. It's almost like he's signing with blood, you know, it's because he's really ripping his his heart out of his chest. And uh, it played out a little differently in the in the finished cut. But um, in my mind, it was like, you know, he used his Gucci cane. That's what it was. He had his Gucci cane and he just went like that and everything went flying. But he did it in a very sort of elegant way. And Maurizio's just standing there watching him. So it was an act of violence in a sense, you know. But uh, also, I don't think Al, Al would like to be headlocked by or <laughs> Yeah. There's two things I think you invented. Um, and I like them both. The first is Paolo actually urinates on the Gucci scarf. Yeah. That, that didn't necessarily happen, right? But he does, of course, urinate all over the Gucci name by trying to start his own line that is quite tacky by many accounts. Yeah. And so why, yeah. why that's more of a symbolic moment. Yeah. So the funny thing is uh, in the screenplay, he actually um, uh, throws or, or dumps the the scarf in an, in a fireplace. Mm. Uh, so Rodolfo is sitting in a rocking chair next to a fireplace and Paolo sees that he's got the scarf and he takes it and he just drops it in the fireplace and then it goes up in flames and he says, you know, with flames rising, I'm going to start my own line. Um, but I, on set, Jared was asking, could he piss on it? <laughs> <laughs> you know, and uh, and I just loved that. I mean, I just thought it was hysterical, you know. And um, every time every time he came on, on set was like Christmas to me because I knew that, A, he was going to, you know, do do the part in a way that would be really... Uh, really uh, surreal and almost like a Peter Sellers performance. And also he would come up with some incredible shit. You know, the the thing about the chocolate and the shit was oh. not written. You know, when he says, trust me, I know the difference. That was, uh, that was his ad lib. I didn't write that. Soar, actually, Soar Like a Pigeon was something I came up with. Another thing I really liked was, I believe it's a maroon Gucci, Gucci loafer that kind of becomes a giveaway of betrayal. Can you talk about how you came up with that idea? Because I don't think that, I don't remember that from the book. Yeah, you know, it's, I have to confess, it's very difficult at this point to remember what's real, what's in the book, what's in the script. It kind of all blurs into each other. But I, okay, I think um, I, I definitely came up with the idea that the uh, the shoe was a museum piece that nobody else had and the idea was obviously that it was like the the smoking gun yeah and the way that i wrote it was um that uh, that aldo meets kerdar uh in a bar in in a bar in milan uh sort of like a very speakeasy-ish kind of bar and he notices the shoe under the table he sees that kerdar is wearing that moccasin and he doesn't say anything, and he just starts talking about you know the, the shoe with the Clark Gable wore with the with the gold gold leaf, and uh, and then he says there's only one person that could have given you that shoe, mm-hmm. and then it cuts to him going to Maurizio's office, and Maurizio opens the door. It's a bit like Frank 
and and Tony Montana in Scarface, you know, where it's like you know he calls. You remember that scene where he he um, pretends to call Frank, and Frank is like, "All right, I'll see you later, honey." <laughs> and it's obvious that Tony Montana knows. He's like, "You cockroach." <laughs> you know? And so and so um, the idea is that Aldo knows that that Maurizio fucked him over, and um, and then the scene following that. Kirdar scene is the scene that I was talking about with the with the walking cane where he brushes that stuff off the desk, sits down, and signs his shares away to his to his nephew. Um, instead, what we did was basically combine the two. Yeah. Um, really just for logistical reasons. Um, and actually, it's so funny because when you write something, you don't think about the, the logic. Well, I mean, you do obviously, but there's always little things that you don't you don't think about it until for example the script supervisor tells you and um the script supervisor on this movie was a wonderful lady named annie penn who works with paul thomas anderson and she she said to me why would aldo be bringing the share certificate from the bar to maurizio's office uh, just to sign off his shares wouldn't they do it all in one place it was like such a you mm. know a logistical thing and um and so, and so that's why we played it off, in, it, which is actually kind of Shakespearean. It's like, you know, he's hiding in the back, yeah. waiting for his uncle to sign the, the shares. And, um, and then Kirdar opens the door and Maurizio comes out. And it really plays like, like, like theater, you know? Um, and, you know, he's waiting in the wings. It's such a perfect example of the way that you can make a moment cinematic that isn't necessarily cinematic in real life. Because in the book, I remember... Uh, when they first approach Kirdar, who's the investor who helps Maurizio take over all of Gucci, um, when they first approach him, it's a phone call. And yeah. they say, you wouldn't have any interest in Gucci, would you? And he says something like, my friend, I'm wearing Gucci loafers right now. That's right. And I just think that it was an incredible way to sort of bring the loafer back, connect it with that character, sort of pay homage to what really happened, but do it in a much more visual and striking, like you said, Shakespearean way. I thought that, that, when, that when that scene ended, I remember thinking to myself, that was a very good scene. Thank you. Yeah, I mean, you, you know, sometimes you um you feel you feel it when you have nailed something, and um, um, I I was very proud of that scene as well. Um, you know, and uh, and it's also nice when you can use something that's true, that's real, yeah, that maybe is like a small footnote, but you you build on it, and you um, and you can really create a, a scene, a dramatic scene out of it. You know, I think for me it was the fact that there was a shoe that was uh, worn by Clark Gable that had a gold leaf inside of it. And I just loved that, you know, building from that and making that sort of the, you know, the object that, that betrays Mauricio. And that is a real shoe? I believe it is, yeah. <laughs> I love it. Oh, I love it. That's great. Um, how did it work with, it's Becky Johnston, right? Yeah. So. There were a lot of different writers on this. Did you two work together or did she do a pass on a different version or? No, it's, it's one of those funny writer's guild arbitration things. Uh, I never met Becky. I never read her script. I wrote my script completely by myself. Yeah. Uh, based on the um, Sarah Gay Forden book. Mm -hmm. um, and there were, I believe there were seven writers that came before me. Yeah. There were seven writers. And um, Becky wrote her script 12 years ago for Wong Kar Wai. Mm. Yeah. Wow. And so, uh, yeah. So, uh, unfortunately, the Writers Guild arbitration process is quite—I um, don't know if I should say this—but it's 
unfortunately sometimes it can be quite flawed yeah uh and uh and that's that's the case here but uh yeah there's yeah. two completely different iterations of the story yeah i believe yeah yeah and it's a tricky one too where these events actually happened so it isn't like someone created the character of luke skywalker oh yeah i mean i could get into it but it's yeah it's a, it's a long and winding road that leads nowhere <laughs> <laughs> you know um can you just say how you first got this job i mean i know we started by saying that you were the one who cracked the script but i understand you'd worked for scott free productions on something smaller yeah yeah so i wrote a script for the eel that was on the blacklist and um the, the eel is a western noir that's sort of like a throwback to peck and pa and you know monty hellman and warren oates those guys um and i wrote it about eight years ago and uh, Kevin Walsh, who the producer of that movie, became president at Scott Free. And he, as is you know, fairly common, uh, he introduced my work to Ridley. Uh, and I say fairly common because obviously Ridley works with a bunch of writers and he's got a bunch of things in development. So he's always looking for new writers and people that he can work with. And uh, he read it and he really liked it. Um, and then I met with Janina, his wife, who had been developing Gucci for many years. And we immediately hit it off. And um, I had some ideas. It wasn't a, it wasn't a pitch. It was not a, a very, very specific take. Uh, I definitely didn't feel like I was pitching a studio where, you know, you have to do a whole song and dance thing. It was, it was just a conversation, which I think is always the most um, fruitful and organic way to do it. And I talked about my background in Milan and my fashion background, my mother's fashion background. And I had a couple of very clear ideas of the tone and the perspective and all of that. And they just gave me the gig. And frankly, I thought maybe Ridley will really like it. And maybe he'll give me another job. <laughs> I honestly did not think he was going to direct it. <laughs> you know, but when Janina called me, two weeks later and she said uh, Ridley read your script and he absolutely loves it you know that was uh, that was very special and then from there on you know Lady Gaga Lady Gaga was obviously a huge piece of the puzzle um, when she got on board Adam came in Pacino Robert De Niro at one point we had Robert De Niro yeah um, who did he play he was going to play Rodolfo oh that's good yeah yeah, uh, we also had Helena Bonham Carter at one point playing Salma's character for like a minute. So, you know, when this happens, a lot of the time you start writing new scenes for different characters, for different actors. And, uh, you know, for example, the scene between Rodolfo and Aldo in the garden, I had not written anything between those two characters because the idea was that, you know, by the point, by the time Aldo meets Maurizio, Rodolfo has, has uh, fallen out with him with, with Maurizio and the two, you know, strands of the family essentially never, never meet. And um, Ridley, Ridley was, was like, we've got to put Jeremy and Aldo together. I mean, Jeremy and Al together yeah. uh, at the scene with them. And so, you know, one thing I learned through this process, obviously it's my first movie. Um, you have to think in terms of, um, of casting as well. You have to think if you have a great actor, if you have two great actors, iconic actors like, Jeremy Irons and Al Pacino, um, you have to figure out a way of putting them on the screen together for at least one scene, you know? That was Roberto Bentevania, screenwriter of House of Gucci, in theaters now. 
pretty damn perfect Thanksgiving movie. I'm Tim Malloy from Movie Maker. I'd love it if you would subscribe to this podcast or recommend it to a friend. Also, we invite you to moviemaker.com, especially if you're looking for some long reads, something transportive, something that might kind of give you actual intel as opposed to all the other stuff you read on the internet. Uh, moviemaker.com, we have lots of stories like that, some of them taken directly from the pages of Movie Maker magazine. Thanks so much for listening. Happy Thanksgiving, and see you soon.